Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East European Studies. I'm your co-host, Hugo Lane, and today I'll be speaking with Peter Jelson about his new book, The Habsburg Empire, A New History. Hello, Peter Judson. How are you doing today? Hi, Hugo. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Well, it's great to be able to talk to you about your book, uh, The Habsburg Empire, A New History, which is published by Harvard. Uh, and I just... We've done this before, so I'm not going to ask you too much about why you studied Eastern Europe in the first place, but I would like to tell tell us a bit about how you came to write this particular book. Oh, gosh. Well, that has uh, a little bit to do with uh, my job now working for the European Union's only university as well. But I will say that when I tried to have my last book published, Guardians of the Nation, uh, Harvard University Press said, yes, okay, fine, but what we'd really like is a big new history of the Habsburg Empire. And at the time, I thought, oh, no, I really don't want to do that, but I really want to have Guardians of the Nation published, so okay, I will... (laughs) agree to it. And, you know, it'll be synthetic. I'll read a few books. It'll take two or three years. Fine. No problem. And of course, it became a massive project. It took almost 10 years, um, as I should have realized it would. And there's a really important reason why I ended up agreeing to write it. And that is that our field, in my opinion, had gotten so far ahead of itself that we had almost hundreds of regional and local studies, but our big narratives, our big histories were really outdated and belonged back in the sort of Cold War vision of what Eastern Europe had been. They were all, uh, most of them I would say, were narratives that had been organized by nation and nationalism. And I wanted to narrate a history of the empire that was about the empire, that put the empire at the center. And if I could say one more thing, I wanted to focus on the relationship of local people to the empire, because I wanted to argue that, in fact, the empire was popular uh, and the empire created a set of common experiences, practices, rituals that people across Central Europe shared. And it's quite remarkable. And I felt those points had not been made in the old narratives. I mean, really, if you think about it, for me, I date the change in our field to 1980 or 1981 with the publication of the books by Gary Cohen and John Boyer. And I think those books really heralded an utter transformation in our field. But none of our big narrative histories responded to that. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a big gap 
between the mid seventies, the you know the la there's um, the Sked book and there's uh, the last of the Robert Kahn books, and then yes. nothing really again. Uh, just uh, the continued publication of AJP Taylor, uh, <laughs> and uh, to to the neglect of um, the um, the other book. The, the and I'm, his name is escaping me. My favorite one, um, uh, McCartney. Well, I was about to say McCartney was my favorite one, uh, but it was so big and so unwieldy, but it was wonderful and beautifully written and such a deep and detailed understanding of so many aspects of the empire. But it wasn't the kind of book that many people could easily read, I would say. You certainly couldn't assign it to students. Particularly since it's out of print. I mean, I, I, had, I remember... Uh, I paid a significant amount of money for mine, as I recall. Maybe I could have gotten it cheaper someplace, but I bought it online. Uh, and it is a great book. I mean, I, that's where I go to you know, when I've been doing things until now. Uh, I have a new book to go to. Uh, so uh, you start with uh, Joseph II, really. Uh, yeah. Some with, of course, Maria Teresa. Um, yeah. And you know, tell us, you know, what... You, where you see uh, Joseph II and how that's a new direction where we've uh, gone with him in the past. Well, for me, what was important, uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, Joseph II worked to create a state. And the Habsburg holdings, certainly before Maria Theresa, don't really constitute a single state the way we would think of a state, a comparable state in Europe at the time. And Joseph's policies, pretty radical as they are, uh, are all designed to create a real state. Now, the other thing that is pivotal is something that a lot of other people think of as pivotal, which is the almost unintentional transformation of a kind of old-fashioned um, estates concept of subjecthood to a shockingly modern French Revolution kind of concept of citizenship. And I argue in the book that, in fact, before the French Revolution even happens, you've got Austria, well, you've got the Austrian lands moving in this direction, thanks to a lot of Joseph II's reforms. I mean, the idea was to try to unleash Austria's economic uh, potential by making the serfs and the peasants into productive, well, into productive individual people who would then pay taxes to the state and not to their local lords. But in doing so, both Maria Theresa, but really Joseph, come to imagine their subjects as, I would say, almost citizens. It, it's it's almost it, it's unintentional, but it's what results from his remarkable policies. And then the third thing is, he creates these classes of people who are loyal now to the empire, and not because they love the dynasty or they're overawed by the emperor or something like that, but they're loyal to the empire because they see that their interests are are really best represented by the empire. And I mean the enserfed peasantry especially, but also the new class of educated middle-class people who become Joseph's army of bureaucracy and who really 
take over almost. I, I don't want to say make it too extreme, but um, really become the new a new ruling class with a great deal of power to affect change uh, in Austria. So I, I see these three things: creating a state, uh, creating citizenship, and creating uh, classes that are loyal to the empire as really critical. And I mean, it's amazing in nine years. Uh, all of this was unleashed. And then the empire spends the next hundred years, I would say, trying to uh, finish the job and failing. How, uh, how, does, uh, how do we deal with the fact that Joseph see himself, as well as you know, historians generally see, portray him as a failure, yet that drive continues? And I, I mean, in many ways, I think of uh, the Josephine mission never really dying. I mean, certainly no, not just about, not just with the the German nationalists who take him up much later, but uh, yeah. in 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 just generally the mission of that state, and particularly in the uh, in the period at least eighteen forty eight, is very much he's still the dominant feature. It's it's almost a bit like the liberalism you've written about in in your earlier book being dom dominating even though the conservatives are in power it's there's a certain uh, josephinism remains the dominant language yes. yeah. of the whole period uh, a couple of thoughts hugo i mean you you already mentioned a point that i think is important that that we have to keep working to unlink joseph from the liberal and then German nationalists who kind of appropriated him overwhelmingly in the 19th century and tried to redefine what he had been in their terms. But what I think is crucial is this idea of creating a unitary, integrated, centralized Austrian state. And even if you think of, you know, Franz second slash first, who we normally think of as super conservative and not at all like Joseph, but he shared the idea of Joseph, of the role, his role as emperor as being the first servant of the state. And he also shared the idea that there had to be a centralized and integrated state. He didn't, of course, share a lot of the more politically radical uh, elements of Joseph's thought. But that's, that centralized state vision, in the end, is what constantly battles against the conservative nobility, even though you could say Franz himself is extremely politically conservative. Uh, but his he, he pursues that vision in the same way. And then if you think of Franz Josef's first decade and the 1850s, that too is an even more radical attempt to um, return to many elements of Joseph II's rule and to radically transform uh, Austrian society. Um, and it isn't until the end of the 1850s that I think it, it, it sort of fails for good. And then there are elements of Josephinism we see for the rest of the history of the monarchy, but it's never quite as powerful again. One of the things I, I'm always struck with, I, I think of Galizzi as actually being one of his greatest success stories. And you do talk a lot about Galizzi in that early phase yeah. of, uh, yeah. you know, at least up to 1848. And I'm wondering if you saw that uh, this as well. Um, I, I, first of all, I'm not the specialist that you are on Galicia, so I'll just mm -hmm. start by saying that. <laughs> you know a lot. You know a lot. 
Well, I do know a lot, and I'll just quickly say that the reason, you know, is that in writing this book, I had to read so many things by so many different scholars who had written about these different regions and crownlands and societies. Um, but yes, Galicia is a really important experiment, and what you see in Galicia for me, too, is that this is one of the prime regions where the peasantry becomes quite pro empire. Again, not because they love the uh, mythical idea of the emperor, but because they understand that the power relations being what they are, their best hope for transformation is from the emperor. Uh, of course, there's a lot of writing, and I think Larry Wolf most recently in his book, uh, uh, articulated a lot of this really well, where Galicia is also, Galicia is also a, a big experiment, uh, an experiment in um, producing a sort of bureaucratic utopia. And I, actually, there's some ways in which you could see Bukovina, too, as being a little bit a part of that experiment as well. And most people will say that the experiment failed. And I, you know, how we measure failure and success is quite problematic. Um, I, I don't know how... Um, I have a lot to say probably later about failure and success in terms of um, the fall of the empire, uh, but I don't see the experiments there as being failures at all. Uh, I think the, the various systems actually took root. They didn't end up looking the way Joseph would have liked them to look, perhaps. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they failed either. No, I, I think that's quite true. That's certainly my impression. I also like the way you use Trieste, by the way, as ah, uh, yes. a, a, a sort of the two counterpoints. And um, as has been pointed out, and I uh, by Irina um, Vushko, there's a kind of funnel between those two states as well, or those regions, uh, yes. which is kind of interesting. Uh, Let's move on to the Restoration era, mm -hmm. uh, which you know I thought was one of the places where you you made the biggest inroads in creating a, a new um, a, a new narrative for how we should look at uh, the Habsburg monarchy. Uh, so, if you could talk about that, uh, sure. was that what you expected to find? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Uh, my first, my dissertation and my first book were about liberalism in the Habsburg monarchy. And one of the big questions I had confronted in that book was, how could 1848 have happened? How could you have had so many, I think, rather well-organized uh, political culture spring into being in 1848, especially middle-class ones, uh, overnight without there having been some sort of something going on in society during this period that's normally considered to be conservative and one of stagnation. And I didn't really know how I was going to handle it, but I knew I wanted a new story there. And what I found uh, was this. For me, the, that era, 1815 to 1848, is a period of stagnation, but on the part of the state. When you think of the state being the Joseph II reforms, which are so radical and so intrusive and so big, and then you think the Napoleonic Wars, in which the state, of course, also plays a huge role in organizing this endless uh, war effort, that 
after 1815, the state can't do anything. It has no money. Uh, even if Franz would like to reform various elements, and he would, he can't. So the state stagnates. But society and economy are flourishing in unbelievable ways. I mean, you mentioned Trieste, and this is precisely the period when Trieste begins to become very important in Mediterranean trade. Uh, but also all kinds of local initiatives taken by business people, industrialists, artisans to create um, associations to, you know, uh, sell their products more broadly, uh, to build railways, for example. I mean, this is also the great period of the beginning of the railways, uh, which are crucial. Um, and then uh, all of these new elements in society, like cafes, uh, which bring people together to read newspapers. And, and we also have this old idea that censorship um, was so powerful that no one knew anything in Austria. But of course, the censorship was really iffy. The people who were hired as censors were rarely as intelligent as the people who were writing the things that had to be censored. So they often didn't know what to censor. Or they were themselves the writers. So we've sort of taken a lot of the claims made about Austria by the later liberals who wanted to see this period as one of terrible backwardness in order to show how great their period was by contrast later. And we've taken their story and I don't think we should. I don't even think that the police spying is quite the, is the work the way that we think it did. There's some really great work on uh, Venice, for example, that shows that the people who were the police spies were often, because they were so close to, to society, they often became quite sympathetic to what they found uh, people were complaining about. And they would send those complaints up the chain uh, to, to see if something could be done about them. So they weren't just spying on people to sort of repress them. So, and then there was the idea of the Biedermeier, which is the sort of, inward-looking, self-satisfied, bourgeois style. And to me, it's the opposite. To me, I see the Biedermeier as a kind of assertion of middle-class vitality against the older aristocratic ways of looking at things. And you think this is the time in which you get the first museums, you get all these scientific organizations. So I, I saw this as a really exciting period uh, and one that we ought to see for what it is and not simply think of it as a moment of stagnation. I, as, as I've said before to you, uh, I've felt for a long time that there was much more there that we didn't understand, that the old, that old myth, just there was big problems with it. I couldn't have articulated it, but, you know, what I can say that in my own time in the archives, what I've looked yep. at, you know, the repeat, the, I was recently looking at the catalog there in, in Lviv, and I was expecting to find all sorts of police reports. And yeah, I mean, there were obviously, I was in the police report file, so, you know, it's not that they weren't there, yep. but they yep. were much, much more limited than I was expecting. I was expecting all sorts of denunciations and things like that going on, and it was really pretty, you know, there were, there were some documents like, you know, a summary of the current situation and stuff periodically, but nothing like I'd expected. So yeah. uh, I think that, that just uh, testifies to what you're saying there. Now, if we look at the... Oh, I'm sorry, sure, sure. 
this is a perfect example for me of the work that people have been doing and your work too and your experience in the archive showing us that at the local level or the regional level, the old narrative doesn't work. And it was my hope to kind of take all of these regional stories and use them to produce this a different big story so that we could, when we're teaching this, we don't have to fall back on the old truisms, knowing that all of the work we do or other people do on the regions just doesn't fit with it. I just have a question for the moment here about that, though. Uh, And that, and this is a kind of pedagogical question. The kind of history that you present in this book uh, is a more complicated history, and obviously uh, more nuanced and, and interesting because of that. Does that make it more difficult, do you think, for... You know, to, to teach this narrative, uh, it seems very easy to fall back on old, the older narrative simply because everyone understands who the actors are. Oh, the Poles. Oh, the Czechs. Oh, the Germans. Uh, and if we don't have, if we can't use those terms, at least not in the, without defining them in a very different way, uh, it becomes, I think it, it makes the, t- the teaching uh, more difficult. And to make you know the creation of a narrative that uh, a layperson reading a book can understand. Uh, that is, and that was for me the enormous challenge. Uh, how to provide a narrative has to have actors in it. It has to be a story. It has to be driven by something. There have to be. Uh, you have to be able to hold on to the story and figure it out as you go along. Uh, and the old narrative was relatively easy for us because we did treat the Poles or the Czechs or the Germans as the actors in history. And I was arguing in this book, these groups, the, uh, these words, Poles, Germans, Czechs, they are not the actors of history, not at all. So what we have to do is find the actors and follow them. So I was trying to tell a story with a- other actors, let's say, Uh, peasantry across the empire or commercial activists or middle-class people across the empire uh, and their relationship to the empire Uh, and to try to tell the story from the point of view of their actions rather than to imagine that nations are actors. Now, we say, because we were raised that way, it's simpler when nations are actors, but in fact, if you put this to students today, I'm not sure it is simpler. Uh, so I'm um, the minute you start the minute you start asking students about well who's part of this nation and who isn't and what does it mean, they can see that it doesn't work too. Now I was trying to offer a different big story around which someone could organize a class, let's say. But I freely admit there may be other big stories and other ways of organizing this history as well. Uh, I did it through the idea of empire, state building from below and state building from above. How do local people latch on to the empire and use it for their purposes? Uh, how are the rulers trying to build a state during this whole period? And how do the two projects kind of come together for most of the time? Well, I mean, I heartily endorse that. I just th- I just know that the, there's a reason these narratives keep on, these nationalist narratives keep on coming back. 
yeah. and they, one of them is that they're easy to uh, to um, to tell in a sense. Uh, yeah. But let us move on and talk a bit about how, if we look at uh, what's going on in the era of Metternich, mm-hmm. and we, we're seeing that in a different light. How does that affect how we look at 1848 and yep. the aftermath yep. of 1848? I mean, you talked a little bit about that, but uh, let's go into more detail now. Um, so I love 1848, and uh, unfortunately my chapter is way too long, uh, but I just couldn't help myself. Um, <laughs> but I just start by saying that. So um, for me, what I see 1848 profoundly in terms of all these different groups at the regional and local level, revolution is the opportunity to remake the empire in terms of their visions. So it's not the moment where everyone wants to tear apart the revolution, uh, sorry, the empire. The goal of most of the revolutionaries, not all, is not to destroy the Habsburg Empire. And I think that is a really important thing to understand in terms of my narrative. The point, rather, is to take over the empire, to influence the direction it's going to go in, to make it into a new kind of empire. Because a lot of people, and you, you raised Trieste before, and I think... Trieste is a gorgeous example here, uh, in part thanks to the work of Dominic Ryle. Um, but in Trieste, you have Italian nationalists who supported the revolutionary attempt in, of the Venetians, of Venice, to break away from the empire, but who themselves didn't want Trieste to break away from the empire and be part of Italy because they believed that their connection to all the markets that were linked through the empire was their strength. And if they lost that, they would be nothing. And as we know, after 1918, that is what happened to Trieste. And unfortunately, it lost its position. So my point is that a lot of the nationalist revolutions in 1848 are all about rethinking what the empire should be, what it can be, how it can best be used for local purposes. Uh, It's only in a couple of places, such as Uh, Hungary and the repudiation of the Habsburgs, and I would say a few parts of the Italian peninsula as well, where the revolution is about actually um, getting rid of the empire. I would agree. I mean, and Galizia, I think, is a prime example. I've always been struck by the fact that Galizia, that people talk about it as a rise, oh, it's the Poles rising up. Well, in fact, but where did did this, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have of going into the streets if the news had not come from Vienna. Yeah, and actually uh, Galizia is even more, I found Galizia really even more interesting. Um, I I opened that chapter with the events of 1846, mm-hmm. which right. I think yes. are also profoundly important for understanding 1848 later. Uh, and I completely agree with you. Um, it's a in fact, I, I would like someone to write a little more about 1848 and Galizia, because I still have a lot <laughs> And questions about it. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you'll get your wish one of these days. Um, <laughs> as uh, you know, moving on there, uh, you know, we so we see eighteen forty eight. What about afterwards? How does it, how does the how yeah. do you understand? So uh, I era? think so. Um, I think one of my innovations is to see the eighteen fifties part of a larger 
fundamentally what I call liberal era. Uh, I call um, I call the 1850s mid-century modern uh, yes. in Austria because because the rulers after 1849 understand that they cannot return to the old ways and they don't want to. Austria is not going to be a great power if it goes back to the Metternich era. It has to be industrial. It has to be, uh, but it has to be stable, of course, and it has to find a way to to influence events even more. Now, one of the interesting things I found in looking at this is there's a big rejection by the politicians who run the 1850s at first, especially there's a big rejection of conservative aristocrats. They find the aristocrats to be completely useless. They didn't stave off 1848 and they shouldn't go back to having a lot of power. And there's a lot of aristocrats too who complain in the 1850s that they from their influential positions, and it's all these middle-class bureaucrats. Um, so it is an age of a renewed absolutism and centralism, but it's also an age of profound economic, I would say liberal economic reform. And then the challenge in the 1850s is how to introduce some small forms of sort of popular participation to bring more people into making uh, economic decisions so that they feel that they have a stake and in the poll, and that so they will act responsibly. 1848 was irresponsible, but there is a belief among a lot of Austria's rulers in the 1850s that eventually there has to be some kind of um, bringing people into the process. And of course, when the system falls apart in 1859, 1860, that's essentially what happens. Uh, and then we get 10 years of trying to figure out how that's going to work. Uh, just another question related to this. Uh, you, know, you mentioned in, in 1848, you're talking about the people wanting the em empire. One yeah. of the things that's I mean, one of the tragic sides of, of, of this story, as, and, as, as you tell it, and maybe you want to talk about this later as well, but even in 1848, is the government's own or, or the government leadership's own perceptions of what's going on is often so out of kilter with what the people want. I mean, and, and meaning that they they see themselves as being attacked. They see the state being attacked, whereas yep. the people are saying, "We want to work with you." It's, yep. it's almost yep. you know, Benjamin. It's, it's you know when the old Garrick line about going going out to the people and say, "Will you work with me? Will you work with me?" Benjamin, <laughs> you know, it'll get better. But except that the state is missing that point. You know, you know that is also an excellent point for understanding why the state collapses at the end of the First World War, uh, because that point also as with 1848, is a profound moment of complete and utter misunderstanding of what's going on in society. Uh, in fact, I would argue even worse because it led to the collapse of the empire. But we can, we can get to that a little bit later. But um, I agree with you fully. But what I also think is interesting in 1848 is that you get a whole bunch of kind of some nobles, liberals who sort of come together to try to create and if you think about it uh, certainly in the uh, Austrian parliament to try to create that new empire in a kind of responsible pro-government way that's not going to be too radical uh, 
and I don't really think they fail. I mean, it looks like they fail because the emperor takes over and rules uh, in an absolutist way. But it, it seems to me that also there's been a class of people created who could be the sort of government that pays a little more attention to society. Uh, and that that's what happens in the 1860s, that those people help negotiate the transformation in Austria to a more uh, participatory, I, I don't want to get too exaggerated here, but to a more participatory system, uh, that at least there are those people. Well, I think you're right. I mean, again, looking at my own work, uh, Galicia, you know, there's a kind of bait and switch that goes on in 1848. Yes, we keep, we keep the German language. We're going to use the German language uh, when Golkowski takes over. Yeah. But what you see happening is in the ranks uh, is an increase. I mean, there's a fair number of polls uh, on the mid-level and lower level. But, yeah. in you know, they're taking over actual management positions in that in the yeah. 1850s. And so they're ready. They're standing ready uh, at, in, in 1860. I think that's a really crucial point that we have to, you know, I, I, my first work was on the 1860s and I still, you know, when I finish everything I have to do in the next year or two, I, I'd like to go back to the 1860s and 50s because I really see these critical transformations happening almost invisibly at this sort of mid-level of administration and, and working. So that's just to reinforce that I agree with, I agree with the point. No. One of the things that moving on into the 60s uh, and beyond, you know, of course, you've become known along with your former student, uh, Tara Zara, uh, with this focus on national indifference, oh. and which has been seen as, you know, we, we've, we've looked at it from the local level. Yeah. When we are now looking at it from this imperial wide level, uh, how has that changed our understanding of it? Uh, or uh, how is it? How does it change how we look at Austria? I think I hope that uh, thinking about national indifference uh, helps us to see the limitations of nationalism, uh, and not simply its overwhelming power and strength. In other words, uh, and I just want to say, for me, national indifference is, was. It really was a strategy for trying to get at specific, certain specific problems that I couldn't understand. Why, at the local level, people didn't seem to make nationalism so much the center of their lives, whereas at the regional parliament or the imperial parliament, it was everything. And how to understand that. So I think what this shows us in a really crude way is that nationalism was politics. And you have to ask yourself, okay, how much of my life, well, now that we live in the Trump era, the answer is probably different. But normally I would have said, you know, how much is politics a part of one's life? Um, I think people who are nationally indifferent could be nationalists during an election. Um, but for most of the year, nationalism isn't what drives their interests uh, and their actions their practices. So if we look at it empire-wide, what we see is that the dynamic is that political parties uh, are organized mostly around nationalism. That is very successful at election time, but that people's lives are not. So then we have to say, okay, well, the political realm isn't everything. 
uh, it's oh, you read the newspaper, it's a uh, performance going on, as I think, uh, for me, the, the uprisings around the Badeni decrees are just brilliant performances. Uh, but as we all know, politicians perform, and then when they're not on stage, they do other things. So one argument is that nationalism is everything in the newspaper and everything in the parliamentary debate, but it's actually very little in everybody's daily life. And the other argument is that the politicians who are arguing in public, when they're in private, they're often happy to be able to compromise with each other as long as no one sees it. <laughs> Which I think is something today. I mean, you know, it's fascinating to watch the Republican Party. If any Republicans tried to compromise, say, with Democrats over a form of legislation, they'll be attacked from the right flank and Steve Bannon will want to remove them. And, you know, so they have to be super careful. Uh, and I think that's the dynamic in the last 30, 40 years of imperial Austria, too. I, I don't know if I answered your question. No, I think no, I think that's definitely answering the question. I think that I, mean, I was just thinking about this as you're talking. I think one of the weird things that ha has happened that happens and it really blossoms in this period and it it really affects it the next hundred years um, is a confusion between the identity based on citizenship, which is growing and growing, yeah, with national identity. In, in, in Austria, you know, it becomes the, the idea that my nation is the language I speak. Um, and although, again, with lots of people who are happily speaking multiple languages. Yep. Uh, and there's but this this can this is this is the confusion. And you say, you know, part of it is the is the way the politics gets organized, it, the parliamentary pol, par, uh, politics get, or, get organized. But citizenship yep. is what's really happening. Yes, and that um, I was also trying to show how that could work. Uh, how, yes, I totally agree. Citizenship is, and we should mention at some point, the civil code that comes out way back in 1811 that uh, creates the idea of the citizen. Um, but especially with the Austrian constitution of 1867, citizenship is critical. And People can sort of say, yes, a national, a national idea is important to me, uh, but other things are important to me as well. And um, this, yeah, uh, what I hope to show through this book, too, is that people took citizenship seriously and built on it to make claims uh, on the empire, political claims, and that they weren't always nationalists, and that a lot of people would have liked to have had, say, schooling in two languages, or would have liked to not have everything be divided by nationhood uh, in their village and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we've been talking about Austria. Let's talk about Hungary in this period. Ah, uh, yes. Which I think you know, is easily overlooked. It's a, it's a, it's on one, in some ways it's a very similar story. In other ways, it's quite different. Um, yeah, and you're right. So, so uh, if you could... Uh, give us some insight into what your book is doing there. Okay. Hungary was an enormous challenge for me because I don't read Hungarian. 
Uh, and most, my complaint about most books like mine is that we leave out Hungary too much, and the history of the Habsburg monarchy really, after 1867, becomes the history of the Austrian half, because that's the interesting half for us uh, in terms of questions like nationhood and indifference and politics. Because, of course, in Hungary, uh, at the level of voting, uh, almost no one can vote down to 1918 and the revolutions. Uh, and of course, Hungary organizes itself after 1867 as uh, a nation state. And a crucial question that a lot of historians sidestep is, what is this relationship between Austria and Hungary? Is it really a state? Can we really speak of Austria-Hungary as a state after 1867? Um, and these are critical questions which I tried to address. And actually, if you count the number of words in the book that I devote to Hungary, I really did. <laughs> I really did say a lot about Hungary. I'm not sure. But I also found that because I don't know Hungarian, I had to rely on far fewer sources. And I felt it was a really big challenge to uh, write at the same level of knowledge about the Hungarian half of the empire after 1867. Um, that I will completely admit. But a few things. I do think that even though in Hungary almost no one had the vote, there is a lot of popular politics. And I do think that, for example, at election time, there were a lot of demonstrations, there was a lot of excitement, there was a lot of standing in society, what was what issues were, what was at stake, an attempt to sort of persuade politicians. I think Martin Nemesh has done really extraordinary work to show us this and how this worked at the local level. Um, I'll just say that. Uh, but of course, in Hungary, we have the attempts at nationalizing non-Hungarian speaking populations, which is the opposite of what we have in Austria. In Austria, you could say that down to 1914, what may be happening is an increased kind of federalization uh, organized both around region and around the idea of nation, whereas in Hungary, it seems that centralization uh, instead is the development. And how can the two states survive together, linked together, if they're moving in such different directions? Um, that's an open question. Uh, I do think but you I see some, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I think you see some of the national indifference, though. I mean, the fact that even though you get the national parties, but you think about the extent to which they were actually successful in limiting what, you're getting people to learn uh, yes. Hungarian yes. and such in the schools uh, is quite striking. I, I, there's a side of me that is, is kind of solipsistic yeah. of, you know, about this. It's really quite amazing how much and how you know, how much punishment uh, a, a huge body politic can take and survive and keep on going on both. And it, it really doesn't. The the difference between is federalism the only option? Is centralization? They both end up in some way working remarkably well. Not saying, obviously not everyone was satisfied in any, by any stretch of the, um, our imagination, but they do continue to muddle through. Oh no, and if I could just add, I was very lucky to find some really good scholarship on Magyarization in the schools. 
Uh, in particular, uh, there's one wonderful book um, by a young scholar who hasn't even got his PhD yet, uh, who wrote about what the experience of Magyarization was like in a school, in schoolhouses in the in Transylvania, let's say, particularly in the Romanian speaking areas, and what you see there too. And then there's Joachim von Puttkamer's wonderful, amazing book about uh, education. Uh, but what you see there also is that you know we have this idea of Magyarization of Hungarians are trying to force everybody else to just speak their language, but in fact, at the local level, what happens is. People have to learn a certain number of words of Magyar, and that's that, and that's all they do. Uh, the state doesn't have the resources to actually carry out uh, what we imagine this process to have been. Uh, I would say the greater problem is that the state limits the languages that can be used in communication with the center. And that means that local notaries, local administrators have to uh, write their reports in Hungarian. Uh, and that often means that there's too little knowledge of the local languages, which really kills the censorship in World War I when the Hungarian half of the empire has no censors who speak any of the languages like Serb or Romanian that they need, whereas the Austrian side is like overwhelmingly well equipped. Uh, but get back to your point. Uh, they do muddle through and look at the United States right now. Um, I wouldn't have said this 15 years ago, but, uh, you know, looking at a system of polarization where no legislation can be passed in the Congresses, where there's so much um, anger in public life. It doesn't look that different to me to some of these states at around the turn of the century, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and we seem to be muddling through ourselves, hopefully. Uh, so I see the state, the state Austria-Hungary, as being in pretty decent shape before the First World War. Which, uh, which brings us to, I mean, that big, the biggest of all questions. In the end, <laughs> you know, national indifference or not, Austria-Hungary did not survive the war. Uh, to what extent right. did the state policies create conditions where nation states, however heterogeneous they might have been, became the only logical alternative? Okay, so it, the way you phrased this question, I found, I found uh, to me, it's a little bit jarring because I don't think national indifference has anything to do with this, and I, I don't think, in the end, it's a story about nationalism. I think it's a story about something else. Uh, the state did not survive for a couple of reasons. The first reason was that it lost the very loyalty that it had um, that it had uh, enjoyed for the entire period going back to the mid 18th century, where people had seen their interests embodied in the state. The thing that I find interesting. At the very beginning of the war, and I, I try to write about this, but at the very beginning of the war, and other people now are writing about this too, uh, the military imposes uh, a dictatorship. It's allowed to do so because of extraordinary emergency laws that the parliament passed when no one was really watching. And no one, I think, understood what those laws would mean. Uh, and those laws essentially abrogate the Reichstag, the state of law, 
which had been continually going on since the time of Napoleon. And it enabled the military to take over the administration at all levels uh, and to impose its own standards on society. And because the people who ran the military were people who opposed politics, who thought that there was too much politics in Austria-Hungary, and who wanted to return the state to a situation where there was no political participation. They were also people who believed that certain language groups in the empire were disloyal, and they were wrong. And this is really important to emphasize. They were absolutely wrong. Uh, uh, Austria-Hungary's population was ex excitedly pro-patriotism as any population was in Europe at that time. But the state, taken over by the military, treated some people as second-class citizens and actually um, persecuted them. Uh, and there's a fabulous study that I cite by Martin Moll of what happens in South Syria uh, in the weeks leading up to the outbreak of the war, where suddenly everybody's turning in their Slovene-speaking neighbor because they're accusing them of being Serb, uh, uh, of siding with the Serbs. And there's no evidence, but the state is taking it seriously because it's what the state expects. I shouldn't say the state, I should say the militarized state. Uh, it's what... It's what it expects. The state expects, for example, that Czech, that Czech speaking soldiers will not be loyal. And Czech nationalists are really happy to go along with that uh, story at the end of the war. Uh, but the fact is, it's wrong. Um, all these people were remarkably loyal in the face of being persecuted by the state that should have known better. So I, I don't know. I'm being clear here, but uh, to me, the crisis in loyalty is all about that. Then, of course, there's also the crisis that the state was unable to provide uh, food and shelter and fuel for so many of its citizens, especially in the last years of the war. And then there's the issue that when it fell apart, it didn't fall apart into nation states. It fell apart into regions. But the people who can the bureaucracies in those regions were nationalist political parties. And one thing I really want to point out, the nationalists had every reason to want the empire to go on because the nationalists had built their own empires, mini empires within the empire up until the First World War. They had stoked the bureaucracy with their own people. They controlled local uh, districts, municipalities. Uh, they, they had built up so, you know, they wanted to keep those empires intact. But when things controlled, nationalist parties controlled regions, and to me, that's really how nation states went out. Hungary, they also went out because of the uh, military situation on the ground. Um, I want to, excuse me, I want to well, interrupt you. Um, sure. and stop because we did, we did lose some of that and I want to make sure oh. that we don't do it again. So if we could just pick up where you were talking about the, um, uh, these, uh, bu bureaucracies having built up many empires again. Yeah. So uh, one point I try to make clear in the book, in fact, nationalists are very much pro-empire, no matter what they say, because they use the empire to build up their own 
bureaucracies staffed with their own people in the homeland. So, for example, by 1915, the uh, provincial bureaucracy in Bohemia is almost 80-85% Czech-speaking, and it's an accomplishment of the Czech nationalists, so they didn't want to destroy that. What happens at the end of the war is that as the regions fall apart, the state can't feed them, the regions are sort of looking to their own policies, it's the nationalist parties and the nationalist bureaucracies that then take over. They are the local power, and that's why we get nation-states uh, at the end of the war, um, rather than some other form. The country Hungary falls apart into regions, and because it's only the regional level, I think, that anything can be done about the crisis and the fuel crisis. Now, if, that, if those crises had been solved, which is impossible, uh, the empire might have stuck around in a very different form, obviously. Uh, but it didn't. Uh, and then the other factor that I mentioned, too, that we shouldn't forget is the military situation on the ground. Uh, the invasions from the south and the east and from later the north, uh, that also changed conditions. So I would say Austria-Hungary did not survive the war because it alienated its own people and that nation-states took over because nationalists controlled the regional bureaucracies and the empire fell apart into regions. So I don't know if that if that makes sense as an explanation, but that's I think it I does. See. I think it does. I think it's a, a, a wonderful uh, you know, insight into what, what was going on. I mean, of course, you, you then toss in the external uh, problems of, a, uh, of the uh, 14 points. Um, yes. Which really, you know, I think has a, a big role, particularly once France uh, recognizes Czechoslovakia. Uh, you know, other stories are going on in uh, in uh, in yeah. Galicia, but you know, what's striking even there is a, you know, look at the if you look at what the Ukrainian na uh, national or rather the Ukrainian Western Western Ukrainian Republic was supposed to be. Yes. Uh, it yes. was. It was. If anything was a mini empire, that was it. I mean, it was designed, yes. the whole thinking was Austrian. And, you know, you look at things, you know, in, there's a wonderful little article about the Galician Compromise written by a Polish uh, professor at Lemberg yep. University, Starkel. Oh, no, no, she was Starzynski, Starkel, somebody else. Uh, yep. And he's writing with great happiness in, in 1917 about how this is going to be, this is going to be true uh, representational representation with with the system of dual mandates and such, and he's very positive even in 1917. It's really striking. It is, and I and I also think we always need to remember that when people, you know, we see 1918 as a huge break, and of course it is, but we also have to remember continuity, and we have to remember that you know when people imagine a new world, all they know about is the old world. <laughs> so they often recreate the institutions and the ways of doing things with which they're familiar. Which to me, I mean, which to me is also why Austria-Hungary, as a shadow kind of realm, does survive the war well into the late twenties, I would say. Well, even today, I mean, Visegrad isn't what it was for five years ago, yeah. but it's yeah. still, you know, it's still lingering there in certain ways. Um, you know, we've come close to the end. 
uh, and I really have enjoyed talking to you about your book. But uh, what are you working on now? You said you, you were busy with some things before you can get back to the 1860s. What are those things? <laughs> uh, well, they're related to this book. Um, the gift that never that never stops giving is, uh, you know, we have 2018 coming up. So um, one project that's supposed to be finished uh, soon, but probably won't be, is the Cambridge history of the Habsburg monarchy, which I'm editing with Mark Cornwall. And we have about 30 authors and we're trying to do a Cambridge history that isn't organized by nation and national group, but more by theme and topic. And uh, we've got a wonderful group of authors, and I just hope that it actually all works in the end. But that's uh, one of the projects. And the other is that Tara, Zara, and I are writing a short book for an Oxford series on uh, Austria-Hungary during the First World War. And we're trying to look at some themes that haven't been written about so much in the past, in particular particular sort of domestic policy, domestic uh, migration, refugees, this kind of thing. Uh, So that is also supposed to be done by the end of next year. And we'll see. It takes me 10 years to write a book. So, you know, (laughs) I'm optimistic. Well, that's better than me. But that's uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, Peter, and I'm sure we'll talk again about one of those books, I suspect. Uh, so I uh, thank you for being with us today on New Books in History as we speak to uh, Peter Judson. Uh, bye bye. Thank you, Hugo. Bye. Thank you today for listening to New Books in East European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, wishing you the best until next time. Bye bye.